0: So we now come to our sermon and we're continuing in our series in the book of Ephesians. We come to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 20. And in this series, Christ and the church, we're considering what Paul has to say about what it means to be in Christ and what that demands of us as Christians. So please turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Verses 11 to 20. Hear now the eternal living word of God. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh... in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. So this country, the United States, has has been a desirable place to live for about as long as it's been a country. People have been leaving their home countries and moving here for the past few centuries. And while the places where the immigrants have come from has varied over time, people have desired to move here for better work opportunities, better living conditions, better education, safety from persecution and violence. They've come here to enjoy the freedom that comes from living in the United States of America. And to become permanent, Part of that freedom, you can become a citizen of the United States. Now, people from around the world have desired to come to the United States and become American citizens. Because when you do that, when you become a citizen of this great country, there are changes that are brought about in your life. These changes remain with you for your rest the rest of your time here. All the benefits of being an American citizen become yours. And so, in a similar way, when you become a Christian, when you are united to Christ by faith, you become a citizen of heaven. You're no longer simply a citizen of this world. And this changes everything. This is your new identity. You are now in Christ. And so this morning, we're going to see three changes that are brought about in anyone who is in Christ. You're united in Christ, you're reconciled in Christ, and you have a new identity in Christ. In our passage this morning, Paul is moving forward the discussion he's been laying out on how the power of God is at work in believers, specifically for his readers in Ephesus as Gentiles, which simply means non-Jews. Paul has stated that all people, Jews and Gentiles, were under the same horrible situation. They're dead in their trespasses and sins. They're walking in their sin, living in sin. But all believers in Jesus Christ, Jew or Gentile, have been saved from their situation. From this horrible sinful state and from the wrath of God that their sin demands. And they've been saved from this by God himself for by grace you have been saved through faith. And now Paul is going to lay out the especially difficult situation that the Gentiles were in. He says, starting in verse 11, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. If all people are separated from God without Christ, the Gentiles were even further away because they weren't a part of God's covenant people in the Old Testament times. They were uncircumcised meaning they never received the sign of the covenant. They were alienated outside the covenant people of God that God had chosen for himself at that time. They were strangers to the promises of God, the promises that were proclaimed by the prophets contained in the scriptures. Now, without faith in these promises of God that are fulfilled in Jesus Christ, no one is saved, Jew or Gentile. But the Gentiles weren't a part of the covenant community. They weren't raised with a knowledge of the scriptures that contained these promises. They were even further away from God, not knowing his promises, not knowing anything about him at all. Paul says they were having no hope without God in the world. They were alienated from God and from his people. But then starting in verse 13, Paul writes of their new situation. He says, but now... So first of all, most, if not all of us, are non-Jews, Gentiles. So this applies to us at least in some sense. Now those who are raised in the church are raised in God's covenant community, raised in a knowledge of the promises of God contained in the scriptures. But even so, you only become a part of God's people through the death of Jesus Christ. Paul says, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And this gives us our first change that we see that is brought about in anyone who is in Christ, is being united in Christ. So we've been learning through this series, through the first two chapters so far in the book of Ephesians, through this series, Christ in the Church, what it means to be in Christ. And I've kind of glanced over this concept so far, but... I want to cover it briefly here. This little prepositional phrase, in Christ. This phrase is used by Paul all throughout his 13 letters. To be in Christ refers to the mystical, spiritual union between believers and Christ. If you have a genuine faith in Jesus Christ, you are united to him through your faith. And this is a crucial biblical doctrine. The Westminster theologian John Murray once wrote that union with Christ is a central truth to the whole doctrine of salvation. It is not a simple phase of application of redemption. It underlies every aspect of our salvation. The union with Christ, being in Christ, is a key theme throughout this letter as well to the Ephesians. Because being in Christ is central to what it means to be a Christian, and Paul has addressed this letter, starting out in verse one, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Then throughout the chapter one of the letter, he lays out all the blessings we have in Christ through our spiritual union with Christ. He begins He praises God, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Then he says that God chose us in him, or in Christ, before the foundation of the world. You were chosen in Christ. Then he says in him, or in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, through the forgiveness of our sins. Then In verse 9 of chapter 1, Paul says something quite astounding. That God is making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he has set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, to unite all things in Christ in heaven and things on earth. God not only unites all believers in Christ, but His plan is to unite all things in a cosmic union of heaven and earth in Christ. It's in Christ that we have obtained an inheritance, it's in Christ that we're seated with Him. In the heavenly places, God shows the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ. And we could go on, because it's through our spiritual union with Christ that all the blessings of God come to us. We're justified, sanctified, we are preserved, and persevere in this life in our union with Christ. And so through your new birth, through your resurrection, Regeneration, your new spiritual life, you're spiritually united to Christ. And through your union with Christ, you're not the same. You're transformed. You are united to Jesus Christ Himself. You are in Christ, and Christ is in you. But Paul's specific point here at this point in the letter is that because all believers have a spiritual union with Christ, They all have a spiritual union with each other. All who are united to Jesus Christ through faith have fellowship with him and are united to one another in love. This is referred to as the communion of saints. We proclaim this as something we believe every Sunday in the Apostles' Creed. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints. The communion of saints is more than simply we all belong to the same club. It goes beyond even that we're all a part of the same family, which we are. We're all brothers and sisters in God's family, but we're brothers and sisters in Christ. The communion of saints is built on the union and communion we have by faith in Christ. You're united to Christ in all his accomplished work, you have fellowship with him in his graces, in his gifts. Therefore, as a consequence of every believer being spiritually united to Christ, we are united to each other in love. And we share in each other's graces and gifts. This means that you are united to every believer. You are united to every true true believer who has passed into glory. You are united to every true believer of other denominations all throughout the world. And so this communion of saints calls for every brother and sister in Christ to serve one another through our gifts so that the church might build itself up in love. You're called to treat other Christians in in the way that you would treat Christ himself. You're called to serve your fellow saints, forgive them, accept them, comfort them, greet them, encourage them, admonish them, Build them up, pray for them, and love them. You and I are called to love one another. You're called to love your fellow Christians as you love your own body, as you love Christ. And so if you think about your relationship with one another in this church, your, your relationship with other Christians from other congregations, even other denominations, you're to love every fellow believer who is united to Christ the way you love Christ himself. The Apostle John wrote in 1 John that this is how you know that you have passed out of death into life because you love the brothers, because you love your fellow Christians. The communion of saints will ultimately be a communion of love because the life of this fellowship stems from our union And our communion with Christ. The death of Christ brought both Jew and Gentile into God's people by bringing them into communion with Him. Now, everyone united to Christ by faith are a part of one body. And so, your union with Christ brings you into union with every other believer. And your being in Christ brings about this change in you that you're united to your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. In love. And so Paul is not only concerned with this, this uniting of all Christians. He also is concerned with our relationship with God. He says, starting in verse 14, "...for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances." that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. The life, work, and death of Jesus Christ not only breaks down the dividing wall on a human level, bringing you into the people of God, uniting you to other believers through your union with Christ, but he has also reconciled you to God. And this is the second change brought about in anyone who is in Christ. You're reconciled in Christ. Paul begins this fairly long sentence discussing how the law of Moses has been abolished, specifically the ceremonial law. And that is, the ceremonial law is the parts of the law which relate to being clean and unclean, the festivals and feasts for remembering God's work on behalf of Israel the dietary and clothing restrictions to distinguish Israel from their neighbors and keep them set apart. All of this has been abolished so that both Jews and Gentiles can be as one people of God, one body of Christ. You don't have to become Jewish first to become a part of the people of God under Christ. You are united to Christ through faith, and that's what brings you into the people of God not the ceremonial law, not circumcision. But then he says that by his work, Christ is making peace so that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Both Jew and Gentile were not only hostile to each other, but they were living in hostility to God. Everyone who is dead in their trespasses, living in sin, children of wrath, and this means that your greatest need of your life was reconciliation, the need for your enmity with God, for the animosity between you and God to end. The relationship between God and the whole of humanity was disrupted by sin. And it took the life of the God-man, Jesus Christ, for God to reconcile sinful humanity to himself. And so our response to this reconciliation is to live as those who have been reconciled to God. Live as those who have been forgiven. God has called us to sacrifice our pride in order to model his message of reconciliation to others. He called us to live with peace with all people. And when this fails... When there isn't peace between us and others, he's called us to love unselfishly. He called us to love from a heart that has been reconciled to God. So you remember that you are a new creation in Christ. You have new affections, new behaviors, and that you were first loved while you were still an enemy of God. The dividing wall of hostility between you and God has been removed. And you need to live with the dividing wall of hostility down between you and your neighbors, especially the communion of saints. And so, Paul's argument is that Christ united Jews and Gentiles together in one people of God by reconciling them both to God. God is bringing people of all nations to Himself as He promised He would do, and He's done so so through the reconciling work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Paul says of Christ, he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Jesus brought us peace with each other, uniting people who were once alienated into one people of God. And he did so by bringing peace with God for everyone. Gentiles who were far off and Jews who were near. And he says in verse 18, for through him Through Christ, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Being united to Christ means you have access to the Father in the spirit. Both Jews and Gentiles, everyone who believes in Jesus Christ, does so by the Holy Spirit applying the work of Christ to you. And through the work of Christ and his spirit, you have access to the Father. And this is a part of changing you when you're united to Christ. Now, Paul concludes his thoughts here, speaking directly to the Gentile believers in Ephesus. Starting in verse 19, he says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together rose into a holy temple in the Lord. For the Gentiles, really every one of us, you and I, we're strangers, aliens, but God changed that. He made you a fellow citizen with the saints and members of the household of God. And this is our third change that is brought about in anyone who is in Christ, your new identity in Christ. Paul's argument has been that the Gentiles and Jews have been united to each other by being united with Christ. And that their union with Christ has reconciled them to God. But throughout this first chapter, Paul has been expounding the blessings and benefits that come through our union with Christ. And your union with Christ, being in Christ, means that you're no longer strangers and aliens to the people of God. You're now a part of God's people. You're now a citizen with the saints, united to all believers of all time. You're a member of the household of God, a citizen of heaven. And this is your new identity, this new citizenship. You're now in Christ. And this changes everything about you. The early church theologian, Augustine, wrote about this new citizenship believers in his extensive work the city of God and in in it he considers the distinctions between the city of God, the the believers and their citizenship and the city of man those that live without God and he pointed out that these two cities are defined by what their citizens love the city of God establishes the ideal of loving God above all else while the city of man is only about a love for oneself. And so Paul has been arguing that everyone was once a part of the city of man. And he says in the beginning of chapter 2, dead in your trespasses, following the course of this world, and you walked in your sin, and you followed Satan. He's saying that you who were once a city citizen of the city of man, but God. But God in his grace delivered you from this state. And he united you to Christ by his spirit, bringing you through your union with Christ into the membership of his household. And he did so that you would now walk in good works. No longer walking in your sin, now living in loving obedience of God. He made you a citizen of his kingdom. And of this kingdom of God, Paul says in verse 20, was built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. So the church, the household of God, is built on the foundation of both the apostles and prophets. The apostles and the prophets are two offices that God established to reveal his word. The word of God in the Old Testament was revealed through the prophets. The word of God in the New Testament revealed through Christ and the apostles. The, The written word of God was written by apostles and prophets. And now that the Bible is complete, the canon of Scripture is closed, the offices of prophets and apostles have ceased. But they are the foundation of the church. God no longer needs these offices. He now has new offices. He has the offices of the church, the elders and deacons. And he gives these officers as gifts to his church. And as we'll have this morning, the ordination and installation of church officers. And the service of these officers is how Jesus runs his church. But here, Paul is saying that the foundation for all God is building in his heavenly kingdom is the gospel that was proclaimed by the prophets and the apostles. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul says that The foundation of the household of God is the apostles and prophets, but Jesus, Christ Jesus himself, is the cornerstone because it's about Jesus that the apostles and the prophets testify. Everything they proclaim points to him. Everything God has done and is doing is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Paul says, in whom the whole structure that is in Christ, the whole structure being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. God is uniting everything in Christ to build a holy temple in the Lord. So a temple is a building in which God dwells. And he's building a living temple on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ as the cornerstone. And Paul gives the believer's role in this in verse 22. In him that is, in Christ, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The result of God uniting his people together through their union with Christ is the dwelling place of God by the Spirit. The household of God of which you have become a member through faith in Christ, through your union with Christ, is the dwelling place of God. It's where God lives by his Spirit with his people. And so Paul's been laying out what it means to be in Christ, what it means for the church, that we're all in union with Christ. As he said at the end of chapter 1, that the church has triumphed with Christ. Christ is triumphant in his resurrection, and we triumph with him. Christ is exalted and now reigns, now and for eternity, and we reign with him. And now we see that the church... The body of Christ is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, and Jesus Christ himself is the cornerstone. And this church is the temple of God. It's a living temple composed of living, breathing human beings in whom the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God lives. And that is every believer. You and I are a part of the living temple of God. And God has built this temple. He gathers his people and he indwells within us all to accomplish his purposes. And so every individual local church, every individual member has an essential role to play in the kingdom of God. The church and every one of you are a part of God's plan for the world. God is changing the world through his gospel and he brings this gospel into the world through his word, and through his church. Through faith in Jesus Christ, you're now a citizen of heaven. You're united with Christ now and for eternity. You're united to all the saints, all believers in Christ for all time. And so you can remember two final things from this. First, remember the communion of saints in our communion, our union with Christ. Our love for each other should be a witness to the world. Those who are crushed by the cruelty and harshness of the world should find the beauty of Christ-like love when they come here. And they're received with kindness, patience, gentleness, forgiveness, and service when they see how we treat one another. And this should be anyone who enters into our presence. They should find people who love the way Christ loves. They should find something real. They should find people who have this extraordinary love for each other. And the second thing is to remember that you're only capable of this love through your union with Christ. Through the Spirit of God working in you. Without Christ you can do nothing. With Christ you can do all things. So let us not simply believe In the communion of saints, but let us be the communion of saints. Let us be the communion of saints for the sake of the kingdom of God and God's presence in the world. Let us continue to love one another the way Christ loves the church. And so you can praise God for all he has done and continues to do in you and through you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we we come before you to praise you in all glory and honor. We praise you that you have united us to your Son through faith. That you've given us this gift of your Son and we are in him now and for eternity. We thank you for all the blessings that you've bestowed upon us that only he deserves. And we thank you for your communion of saints. That we can be a part of this extraordinary love of your people that you have called us to. And we ask that you continue to work in us, continue to work in our hearts and minds, that we may love you with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength, and all our mind. And that we may love our neighbor as ourself. And may our love for one another be a witness of the power of your gospel to the world. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.